Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Jay. And I'm B. And in case you're wondering why we didn't use our entire <laughs> names, it's because we're talking about Gossip, Gossip Girl. Girl. <laughs> we didn't even plan that. <laughs> um, yes, we are. We are talking about Gossip Girl, both the first novel from 2002 and uh, the first few episodes anyway of the TV series that I think started in 2007. Hey, Joe. I had it open because I was going to know my stuff. <laughs> it is September 2007 through December of 2012. Six seasons. But yeah, we're only talking really about the first couple episodes. I think I've seen the first two seasons, but my memory is very hazy. I might actually be persuaded to finish this series because I enjoyed the first two episodes that we watched for this week. But, you know, we'll see. Well, it's because they're done by the same people who do the OC, Brenna. I've never watched the OC. I know. This is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> that there's this whole world of television that I've denied myself. Yes. The difference, <laughs> of course, being that the OC is far less catty. Okay. Oh, well. Just as soapy. Okay. The silliness is, is really part of the attraction. <laughs> we should let people know that it's 6.30 in the morning, my time when we're recording, on a Saturday. So if I'm slow on the uptake today, I blame myself for none of it. I was going to say, you're not apologizing for that, are you? No, I'm absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, before we dig into Gossip Girl, we should probably get to the news, although I did already tell Joe. So listeners, it's finals week here, and I am sitting in my office at the college. I am literally surrounded by piles of essays at the point where I'm not sure which ones have been graded and which ones haven't been. So my news is that I'm alive. I am still alive. That is all I'm bringing to the table today. So Joe, I'm handing it over to you. This is fair. <laughs> you know, we're also pre-recording a lot of these so that you can go on vacation. So technically, by the time this drops, you'll have gone on vacation and come back. That's true. That's true. Fair. Yeah. Okay, so I am doing a cheat for my homework, and I'm dipping into the archives of books that I've read before, but in my own defense, it's also because I reread this trilogy of books around this time every year. Oh. And of course, I'm talking about my very own Gossip Girl of Youth, and that is the Final Friends trilogy by Christopher Pike. This is the most on-brand news you've ever brought to the show. You betcha. This isn't even a stretch. It's not a reach by any means. Tell us about it, Joe. Okay, so this is a trilogy of books that were all published in the year 1988. And I'm going to read you the back of the first one, and then I'll give you a quick overview. They were republished... Uh, Christopher Pike had a run, I think, in the late 90s or early 2000s where they republished a bunch of his books in different formats or compendiums. So this trilogy was republished as one large book called Until the End, which I think is a terrible title to <laughs> The Final Friends. So the back of the first book, which is called The Party, when Mesa High closed, more than half the students were sent to Tab High. Among them were Jessica Hart and her best friends, Sarah Cantrell, Polly McCoy, and Polly's younger sister, Alice. Together, they decided to have a get-to-know-each-other party. They invited dozens of people. Michael Olson, shy as he was brilliant. Nick Grutler, powerful and insecure, a.k.a. he's black. <laughs> Bill Skater, the handsome quarterback, a.k.a. he's white. <laughs> 
Claire Hillary, the gorgeous cheerleader, and Bubba, whom all the girls loved and hated. But some people came that weren't invited, and the evening ended in horror. Most figured it was a suicide. They figured wrong. Oh, Joe. This is classic <laughs> Christopher Pike territory, where it's a bunch of disparate people who are coming from different kinds of backgrounds. You know, they're mixing, they're mingling. Some of them are sexually attracted to each other. Others, it's a very combative relationship right from the start. There's a mastermind who has, you know, tech skills, who can manipulate things. And the three books follow the course of the single senior year of these students as they try to process the events that happen at this party where one of the people dies under mysterious circumstances. And it all comes to a head on the party boat at graduation with a bomb, and some people are revealed to have been lying the whole time, some people die, and of course some people hook up so that they can have their happily ever after. But what amazes me about final friends is it's written almost in the exact same way as gossip girl only Mm. maybe slightly less mean (laughs) the chuck character is bubba in these books blair is claire the head cheerleader who's like just a bit of a bitch the serena character is jessica who's kind of like a little bit spacey and doesn't always know what she should be doing but she's also kind of got a heart of gold so it was an interesting read I did time it for this particular episode because I was thinking, I wonder how far back some of these character tropes in Mm, YA go. And it was like, yep, they're all kind of there. Even the, you know, the focus on sex, but also the very odd language where it's like, oh, you know, I wonder what his penis will look like. (laughs) What will I be able to do with it? And then I'll be a woman. You're just like, no one speaks this way. So, So, yeah, you know, hey, if you were a fan of Gossip Girl, I encourage you to try to track down the Final Friends, a.k.a. Until the End series. It does not hold up in a lot of ways. The language is antiquated. The treatment of the people of color, there's two of them, very problematic. Mm. But it was the 80s. And Mm. this is one of those things where it's like the publishers would literally say, no, if you're going to have... A black character, they have to end up in a wheelchair or be called in drugs. Yeah, Yeah, this is true. Oh, publishing, especially for young people. We have. (laughs) Maybe Uh, not with Gossip Girl. (laughs) What? A smooth transition. (laughs) Yeah, so we are this week talking about Gossip Girl. As we said off the top, we're just talking about the first book, um, which was published in 2002. Although Gossip Girl has been a bit of a juggernaut. It's an 11 novel series plus a parody book plus a spinoff series called Gossip Girl, the Carlisles. And oh, there's two then. Oh, then there's the Jenny It Girl as well. also has one called the In Crowd. Right. Well, the It Girl. Oh, yes. There we go. Sorry. Yeah. And there's a, there's a manga as well. <laughs> Gossip Girls for your eyes only. Which I'm not going to lie. Wish we had have read the slasher or the manga. Kind of, yes, I do as well. We are cramming this episode in between episodes, so I think I would have died if I had to make it through any more than I did. But I'm definitely very curious about the manga. And in fact, I was going to say to you, this is something that I would revisit. Like, I would totally look at the slasher text and the manga as like a follow-up episode if people are interested. So let us know. Yes. What's fascinating to me is that the 11 original novels were published two a year. (laughs) They were published two a year. That's crazy fast. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we want to speak to the quality of the writing. It's not or... great. Uh, it's not great. So I guess I should talk about what the book is and then we can critique it. Sure. So the premise of Gossip Girl, it's a group of teenage socialites, really. I'm primarily focusing on the teenage girls who go to the Constance Billiard School for Girls, which is an elite private school on the Upper East Side of New York City. They're all incredibly wealthy. They're all incredibly glamorous. And their every move is being chronicled by a gossip blogger. I was trying to think this might be one of the very first books to use blogging as sort of a central conceit, at least one of the first YA books that I'm aware of. Yes, I think that was actually one of the reasons that it got greenlit is because the pitch, the original pitch of using the blogging was like so avant-garde at the time that it was kind of like, oh, wow, we're really getting ahead of the market at this point. Yes, and I don't even think I said off the top that it's written by Cecily von Ziegsar. And we'll talk a little bit, uh, Joe found a really great article about her background and how she sort of conceives of this as like a class critique. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But mm -hmm. the general plot of the first book, our central characters are Blair Waldorf. She's sort of the queen bee of her school. Mm -hmm. She's good at everything. She wants to go to Yale and she is doing everything she can to make sure she gets into Yale and organizing bizarre fundraisers and tutoring third graders and nothing out of the goodness of her heart, everything for mercenary purposes. Yes. Serena Vanderwoodson used to be the queen bee of the school and the main party girl, but she went away to boarding school, at least in part because she slept with Blair's boyfriend. And Blair doesn't know that off the top of the book. But Serena's been away at boarding school. And one of the things that happens while she's away is Blair realizes that without Serena around, she can really butterfly into the girl she wants to be. And so when Serena returns home, it is not at all to a warm welcome. Instead, she finds herself sort of on the outs of her original friend group. Yes. And there are tons of rumors about Serena. The book really trades in rumor and innuendo. Obviously, the title is Gossip Girl. But the primary mode by which young women are policed in the world of the novel is through slut-shaming. So Ooh, yeah. what Serena hasn't done, according to the gossip mill, isn't worth knowing about. Nate Archibald is Blair's boyfriend, but he's in love with Serena. And so that obviously is a whole thing. And then we have Dan. Dan is the nice boy who is not one of the wealthy elite class, but instead a more kind of, I guess, normal New York teenager. Like, quote unquote, because oh, yeah, he totally comes quote from unquote. a family that can still afford to send both him and his younger sister, Jenny, to oh, yeah. his elite private school. Yeah, they're very like, his dad's like this total class warrior, but also these kids aren't scholarship students. Like, they're they're yeah. being sent to this private school. And every time they describe his apartment in the book, yeah. I know we're supposed to think that it sounds worse than the other ones, but it's the one I would want to live in. It's all 1940s fixtures and 12 like 12-foot ceilings. 12-foot ceilings. Like, it sounds amazing. I guess he's supposed to be, in many ways, he and his sister Jenny are supposed to be the conduits to like the real world for the reader, but yes. it's still a pretty privileged version of the real world. But Dan's thing is that he's sort of a poet, sort of an existential philosopher kind of guy, and he also is in love with Serena. Everybody loves Serena. <laughs> Uh, his younger sister, Jenny, is desperate to be sort of seen by the popular girls, but that also makes her a really easy tool to be used by them. 
there's Vanessa, who is the other kind of weird kid. And she's, she actually is a scholarship kid. And she actually is sort of from, she from the Bronx or Brooklyn? I think Brooklyn. And she's a budding filmmaker. She's in love with Dan. (laughs) And then there's Chuck, who's a rapist. Yes. So that's the characters. <laughs> the plot of this first book sees Serena's return and an attempt to renegotiate the social network of the school now that she has returned and upset the balance. Alongside that, Vanessa is making a film, which Serena auditions for, but because Dan is very clearly in love with Serena, Vanessa does not award the part to Serena, and so Serena goes off to make her own film with the help of Jenny. In the backdrop of all of this, we have a fundraiser for peregrine falcons. Not all peregrine falcons, just the two who live in Central Park. Mm-hmm. It's like a really glitzy fundraiser for two birds. It's yes. absurd. And during that benefit, Chuck attacks Jenny. And throughout, we see that Chuck is predatory. And he's sort of a date rapist slash regular rapist ready to happen basically all the time. He tries to take advantage of Jenny, but luckily Serena and Dan are able to rescue her, which brings them closer together. Mm-hmm. Did I miss anything? Um, I mean, it's a lot of just <laughs> bitching and backstabbing, to be yes, honest. So I think you yes. probably covered. The other big thing is that even though this is its own book and it's part of a larger series, it doesn't feel like it covers a lot of ground despite the fact that it's 220 pages long. Like, I really felt like we were just starting to get into things. And then it's basically, book's over, see you in the next one. Like, it feels almost episodic, but it's too long to be episodic. the planning and execution of the Peregrine Falcon fundraiser (laughs) takes the entire book, which, and we'll talk about this when we get to the TV show, they cover that entire thing in one episode. They cover almost the entire book in that pilot of the TV show. They do. They do, it's true. It is, and it makes for, I made the mistake of watching first and going to the book second. And one, it makes the book incredibly slow. And two, we'll talk about this when we talk about the adaptation, but the characters are a lot less likable in the book. And it's a bit like digging through a mountain to get through once you've met the more likable versions of the same characters. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yes. Yes, correct. So where shall we begin with the book? I don't like these people. Yes. I I was thinking about this this morning as I was walking to work and trying to collect my thoughts about it because I was really worried I would have nothing to say about the book because I was so like, this is frivolous and dumb and I hate it. I think that's like the immediate feeling. And it if is. you're outside of the target audience, it's like, these people are atrocious. They are the worst. Why would anyone read this trash? It's drivel. Yes. And then you have to take that step back in a way and say okay so what is this book actually doing it's not not self-aware so obviously there's something else going on we'll talk about the class critique in a sec and i also i was saying to joe off the top i found a really great naomi wolf review of not just this book it's about sort of in the mid-2000s there were a lot of these series a lot of them which we'll probably end up covering at some point. Probably because they all got adapted. <laughs> so Naomi Wolf is sort of critiquing it from like a gender perspective, and we'll talk about all that. But I think my immediate reaction and my thinking about it is really, it's colored by the fact that I can see how in the early 2000s, 
I would have enjoyed this. I would have enjoyed this series. I would have read it. I would have inhaled it as each new one came out. But I don't care about rich people's problems anymore. And I keep running up against this wall in this podcast because I don't know. I mean, maybe this is just, maybe this is just a place you get to in late stage capitalism Mm -hmm. when income inequality is not something you can ignore anymore. Like these kids drink in scotch on a weekend what I pay in rent probably and I'm an adult (laughs) human with a child and I just it's not to say that there aren't moments where I'm like okay I care about what happens like I don't want Jenny to be sexually assaulted I like her just treated so flippantly so all of the sexual assaults are treated like all of the sort of that's just who Chuck is like okay it was 2002 like you don't get a huge pass on that so there are moments where I cared But for the most part, I'm just like, yeah, okay, they have a lot of money and they behave badly. Mm -hmm. Next. (laughs) And part of it is that it's the same set pieces over and over again. I don't mean within this book. I mean, every time we meet wealthy teens, it's -hmm. the same set pieces over and over again. They drink too much. They have too much sex. They do too many drugs. They don't think about the consequences of their actions, but they still get into great universities. It's like, okay, this makes me tired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of non-relatability to these characters Mm. because they are so fabulously wealthy. But it's not just, oh, it's a glimpse behind the mirror. I'm looking at it thinking, okay, I'm having a lot of difficulty trying to make any kind of connection to Mm -hmm. these people because their lives are so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's part of the fantasy and that's part of the allure. But I think particularly as an adult... That really wears off. Yeah, it really does. One of those things where you can say, oh, I see why if you were a 12 to 14-year-old girl who was maybe living a normal existence and you weren't able to afford everything that you wanted or you had strict parents or, oh, God, religion in your life that was Mm -hmm. a little bit controlling or if you lived in a small town, Mm -hmm. you know, any of these things where you had conditions imposed upon your existence by say parents who gave a crap about you <laughs> how dare they how actually Gossip dare they? Girl is going to offer you this escapism yes. and i can see that but the other big piece for me was just these characters are so abhorrent that all i could think about was if i was a parent there would be no way i would let my kids go anywhere near this No, this is so okay. I'm going to read you a quote from Naomi Wolf. So, this is from if you, if anybody wants to look it up, it's a really great compendium review of the clique novels, which are set in, oh, I think they're set on Martha's Vineyard, maybe. And then there's the Gossip Girl novels, obviously, in Manhattan. And then the A list books, which was actually written by like a married team of writers, which makes me roll my eyes. Anyway, then that one's on the West Coast, but they were all of a moment these novels about rich teenagers getting away with everything short of murder Mm -hmm. yeah not even murder i feel like these books would be better with murder i really do i (laughs) listen it's the one and only time i'm going to say this i wish we had read the slasher version yes (laughs) at least maybe there might have been some stakes anyway so naomi wolf says and the review is called uh wild things it's from the new york times march 12 2006 Sex saturates the Gossip Girl books by Cecily von Ziegser. This is not the frank sexual exploration found in a Judy Bloom novel, but teenage sexuality via juicy couture, blasé, and entirely commodified. Yep. To me, that is everything about this kind of YA 
I mean, we talk all the time about the important good work that YA can do, right? Mm -hmm. And I am absolutely not opposed to, I'm not opposed to sex. I'm not opposed to drugs. I'm not opposed to violence. I'm not opposed to drinking in these books because I do think that that can serve a really important purpose. And I don't even mean in a go ask Alice cautionary tale kind of way. I mean, in a just teens need the opportunity to explore their world and they need to see their explorations reflected in their literature. Mm-hmm. But the contrast that Wolf sets up here was really striking for me because there's sex all over Judy Bloom novels, but it's about like, this is my body and how can it feel good for my benefit? And what is sex? And what are these changes about? It's for, I mean, and I'm talking about girls here. It's for the teen girl, right? Like it's written for her to understand her own experience better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas this is just titillation. Yes. It is absolutely like sex is used for for vengeance, for control. It's used for the sort of mindless passage of time. It's used for power. But at no point, as much agency as the young women have in this book, which I did appreciate, the agency around their sexuality is entirely about pleasing the boys and fitting into a preconceived construct of what they're supposed to be or using it to punish and harm like through rumor and innuendo yes and i didn't like that i just didn't want to read about it anymore i was like i can see how this would have me turning the pages like crazy when i was 19 and how it grosses me out (laughs) when i'm 36 it's interesting. So you mentioned off the top that I had sent you a piece. Mm. It's by a really well-respected TV critic who I almost wonder now if she regrets writing this, but it's by Emily Nussbaum for New York Magazine. And it's more of a profile of the author than the actual books. But there's some interesting quotes or passages from this article. And one of the things that, how do we pronounce it? Von Ziegersar? Zigasar? I'm not Ziggas- sure. Zigasar. Zigasar. Zigazag um, owl. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm going to read you two excerpts that are sort of close together. So, like other girly series, Sex in the City is the closest analog to which I say no. Gossip Girl would be easy to dismiss as brittle junk, but beneath its stylized surfaces, the series is surprisingly sophisticated. She takes seriously the inner lives of characters who in any other teen narrative would be stock villains, like a judgmental queen bee and her cheating boyfriend. Most notably, the books have a been-there-done-that honesty about Manhattan's social mores and a take-your-pick, refreshing or alarming lack of moralism about teen sex and drugs. So then, jumping down a little bit, this is a quote from Von Ziegersler. I always presented books that tried to teach a lesson where the characters are too good. They don't swear, they tell their mothers everything. I mean, of course I want to be the responsible mother who says, oh, there are terrible repercussions if you have sex, do drugs, and have an eating disorder. But the truth is, my friends and I dabbled in all of these things, and we all went to good colleges and grew up fine. And that's the honest thing to say. So... It's like, on one hand, I look at that quote, and I think back to the book, and I think, okay, there is a frankness to the way that the story Mm -hmm. is being told, like, almost off-puttingly so. And in some regards, that's almost worthy of admiration. Like, true, yes, Blair has a very casual eating disorder that is acknowledged as a problem that people are aware of, but yeah, it's also not ruining her life. 
whereas I know that there are books out there where the entire narrative is centered around how an eating disorder has ruined people's lives. Mm -hmm. And it's almost admirable to be like, okay, well, not everything has to be a very important message. And I'm doing air quotes or something like that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it feels to me like too often Gossip Girl treats every issue as just something that can be addressed just by like getting your friends activated or by Mm -hmm. going to the bar and having a couple of drinks or just casually sleeping with somebody like nothing really matters because everything is so transitory and I think that's a terrible message to offer on people who maybe aren't equipped to handle life's problems in such a facile way. Well, and what bothers me about that quote, and it's funny when you started to read, I was like, oh, I got to remember to talk about, oh, no, he's got it. That's the exact quote I wanted to talk about from that piece. Because to me, what's bothersome about that is like, yes, all of your friends had drug problems and, you know, a gentle eating disorder and a ton of casual sex. And you all ended up going to really good universities because you were wildly insulated by privilege. Yes, you were rich AF. (laughs) Right? Like if you tell a kid in a middling high school that this is all fine, this is how you can go through life, like basically consequence free, they're going to hit a wall real soon, right? And her idea of what is a representation of real life to me is... It's still ridiculous. It's on the one hand hilarious and it's on the other hand, I'm going to read you another quote from that Naomi Wolf piece, okay? And then I promise I'll put it away. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, this is why we do this so that we can have these different kinds of perspectives. So she makes this really great point about the way the teenagers in Gossip Girl are basically just slotting themselves into the same roles that their parents have, right? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she says here, In the Gossip Girls novels, meanwhile, every day is Freaky Friday. The girls try on adult values and customs as though they were going to wear them forever. The narratives offer the perks of the adult world not as escapist fantasy, but in a creepily photorealistic way, just as the book jackets show real girls polished to an unreal gloss. It's not surprising that Cecily von Ziegsar's matter-of-factly told an interviewer that she sees her books as, quote, aspirational, which she seems to think was a good thing. (laughs) The great reads of adolescence have classically been critiques of the corrupt or banal adult world. It's sad if the point of reading for many girls now is no longer to take the adult world apart, but to squeeze into it all the more compliantly. Sex and shopping take their places on a barren stage, as though, even for teenagers, these are the only dramas left. Mm. I read that and I was like, oh man. Ding, ding, ding. She nailed it. (laughs) She did nail it, right? Because the ways in which these girls are all... Even as they roll their eyes at their mothers, they are all just putting on the sort of socialite roles that their mothers play. Oh, yeah. And everything to do with the colleges. Oh, my God. Yes. With the exception of Vanessa, no one in this book, and I guess Dan to a certain extent, but let's focus on the women. With the exception of Vanessa, no one is doing anything because they want to. No. Even Jenny... She loves art. She's talented with her calligraphy. She's not doing projects for herself, right? She's doing the school hymnals so that she has like this extracurricular to put on her CV. She's doing the party invitation so she can wrangle an invitation for herself. Like Mm -hmm. not a single action in this text from Jenny or Serena or Blair is happening because they want to do it or because they have some kind of internal intrinsic motivation to do it. No, it's all about climbing the social ladder. Yeah, and I, God, I just, I find it depressing. (laughs) 
this is also a reflection of how you and I are old. Let's be honest, we're okay, old. We're not old, but we are. <laughs> we've always been goody two shoes to a certain mm. degree. Fair. Even in our youth, this was not our scene, right? <laughs> Fair. So, I. I don't know, like, and this is my struggle, particularly with the book. The TV show, less so, because I think you can see the wink-wink, nudge-nudge quite Mm -hmm. a bit more evidently in Mm -hmm. the TV show, whereas in the book, it's so easy to lose any kind of satire. Like, I know that it's always brought up, like, this is a satire of the Manhattan clique and the wealthy, and you're like, but is it? Yeah, is it? Do, do its readers know mm-hmm. that? So here's the thing that I have learned from approximately 14 million years of teaching <laughs> Jonathan Swift's <laughs> The Modest Proposal. The intention doesn't matter if the message isn't construed by the target audience. Like, at what point is there no point in teaching A Modest Proposal anymore if more than half of my students really think Jonathan Swift eats babies, right? At what point is the moment of critique or satire lost? And that's what I keep thinking in this book. And it's not like I have not been prey to the allure of these books in the past. And I'm thinking about things like, oh my God, I loved the Shopaholic books when I was in my early 20s. I adored those books. I inhaled and devoured those books. And that was all about sort of fantasy and wish fulfillment. Consumerism, capitalism. Exactly. There was no meaningful critique of (laughs) capitalism. Shopaholic is not a Marxist cautionary tale. It's just fun and silly. And I have every place in my life for fun and silly. But I think that where I lose interest in it in the context of Gossip Girl is... I don't think there's anything else to hold on to. Part of what's charming about the Shopaholic books for me was that the protagonist is as foolish and stupid about money as most of us are in our 20s. And the fantasy is that there's never any real consequence because she just marries a rich guy, right? And that's like, hey. But Sophie Kinsella is not out there trying to tell people it's a satire, right? She's out there being like, yeah, this is frothy nonsense. I would almost have more respect for Gossip Girl as a construct if that veneer of, well, this is a satire of the Manhattan social elites wasn't being painted onto it. Because I really think it's painted on as an afterthought. Hmm. This is not the argument that I expected from you because (laughs) we've had conversations about how nothing is ever just a simple frothy, like beach reads are beach reads, but there's always more to them than just that. Yeah, but the more here is not anything I like. It's sexuality used for manipulation and violence, and it's cruelty, like unabashed cruelty and the impossibility of meaningful female friendships. And like the stuff that is here is not stuff I want to talk about, Joe. It's just stuff that makes me feel yucky. I think that's a more honest argument from you. Because (laughs) there's a difference between saying, do we not personally like this book as opposed to saying, well, there's just, there's not that much here to explore. No, it's objectively bad. And I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think even you truly believe that. No, I don't. The main thing, and we've talked about this quite a few times, is just the difference that the passage of time makes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, you know, this book in 2002 would read incredibly differently, not just because we'd be younger, but like the world has 
changed. I definitely, I wasn't being um, lofty when I said off the top that like, we are further into late stage capitalism and inequality is like a significant cultural touchstone issue, not just something that Marxists write about. And the result of that is that, yeah, I just don't have patience for these kinds of problems. Also, I couldn't help reading it. I was like, man, this got published in 2002. How many of these people made their made a substantial chunk of their money in the subprime mortgage fiasco? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, these are bad people. Like, <laughs> I have gotten to a point in my life where a certain level of wealth acquired through certain means is just unredeemable. I mean, this is very much me reading these books with adult eyes in a way that I just couldn't detach from. But I just, I mean, maybe we should transition to talk about the TV series because I'm infinitely more charitable towards the TV series because I think the TV series, as you say, the wink and the nudge is more explicit. And also the TV series recognizes that in order to sustain, how long did it go? Six seasons. It needed likable characters. And it starts that out of the gate in a way that the books just don't have. There's just... No yeah. one likable in these books. And I think that that makes a massive difference in how I read the representation of class and in how willing I am to be interested in their stories. Mm-hmm. Like, let's play the trailer and then we can talk. Is that cool? Yep. This fall, from the creator of The O.C., based on the worldwide sensation that topped the New York Times bestseller list, comes the CW Network's hottest new series. Good morning, Upper East Siders. Gossip Girl here. Your one and only source into the scandalous lives of Manhattan's elite. Top story on my homepage, Serena Vanderwoodsen, everybody's favorite it girl, has just returned from a mysterious absence. We've missed you, S. Oh, that's Dan. Looks like his childhood crush has returned. Dream on, lover boy. She is so out of your league. Blair is Serena's best friend. Well, at least she used to be. But her boyfriend, Nate, rumor has it, he's always had a thing for Serena. Look, everyone, it's Serena. Serena? Why did she leave? Why did she return? We're all just dying to see what happens next. Between the A-list parties and the smoking hot scandals, I'm not gonna lie to you, it's a pretty fabulous life. You know you love me. Gossip Girl, coming to the CW. All right, so your overview of Gossip Girl, the TV show, is, as I mentioned earlier, it's partially developed by the same people who were involved in the creation of the OC, Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, and it features Kirsten Bell as the voice of Gossip Girl. She's seen on the TV show once in a later season, but she's not actually playing the character. And the reason that she was cast is because the CW had recently canceled her own TV show, Veronica Mars, so I think they were trying to say, hey, we still love you. I wondered what that was because it's an odd fit for her. She actually pitched herself because she had done so much voiceover work on Veronica right. Mars. And right. And I think she was just like, I can play frothy and a little bit bitchy. Mm-hmm. So it stars Blake Lively as Serena Vanderwoosen. And at the time, Blake Lively was not the same big deal that she is now. So this was really her kind of coming out. 
Leighton Easter as Blair Waldorf, Penn Badgley as Dan or Lonely Boy, as he is sometimes referred to on the TV show. <laughs> Chase Crawford as Nate, Ed Westwick, who is British, plays Chuck, Taylor Momsen as Jenny, and we've got some beefed up roles for the parents. So Lily Vanderwoorsen, Vanderwoods. Oh, why? <laughs> I'm really bad with all of the like oity toity last names. <laughs> Serena's mother, Lily, is played by Kelly Rutherford, and the parent of Dan and Jenny is played by Matthew Settle, and he has a different kind of role in the TV show. And Vanessa is played by Jessica Shore, and she is the only person of color in the main cast in the first season. The names of the majority of the actors make me laugh so hard because they're just they all have such rich people names. They truly do. Leeton, yes. Meester, Penn Badgley, Chase Crawford, Taylor, Momsen. Like, these are the richest rich people names that ever reached. Mm-hmm. Cracks me up. Those are the actors, for God's sake. Yeah, that is not their character <laughs> names. Those are the actual actors. Oh, and it cracks me up. Most of these people have kind of gone on to do some extra stuff. So as you mentioned, the TV show did run for six seasons. The final season is an abbreviated 10-episode run. The interesting thing about the TV show, it debuted to tons of hype. This is actually one of the shows that helped the CW establish itself after it became the conglomerate of the WB and UBN. They were looking for something that would help the network to establish itself as a new entity. This is the kind of show that we're doing. And Gossip Girl was that show for them. Despite that, the TV show was not actually a rating success by any measure. For all the hype and all of the hysteria around things like Blake Lively's haircuts, which have been compared to the Rachel from Friends in terms of the analysis, the popularity, girls trying to covet it, and the focus on fashion and what it did for all these different things. The show was a middling hit. Like, it never got more than 3 million viewers on average over the course of any of its seasons. Its highest rated was season two, which I think is when most people would say the show kind of came into its own and really, like, figured out what it was doing. Interestingly enough, it also got criticized by quite a few people for straying too far away from the book. So even though the two episodes that we watched are very on point for the first book, it took a lot of liberties, particularly Mm. as it moved into its middle and later seasons. One other funny thing that I thought you would like as a fan of Riverdale is that all of the episodes are homages or plays on famous book titles or pieces of pop culture, which is something that Riverdale does all the time now as well. You know who else does that? The Degrassi reboot. Every Degrassi episode, at least in The Next Generation, was a pop song. Every title was a pop song. Mm-hmm. It Which all I'm comes sure back. Doesn't you know ever end up having to be shoehorned in in any <laughs> It always comes back to Degrassi. <laughs> Very on brand for you, I must say. Mm-hmm. Well done, B. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jay. Okay, so here's what I want to say off the top about the series. Okay. I liked it, and <laughs> <laughs> I liked it, <laughs> and I didn't expect to because I don't know. For someone who consumes almost nothing but teen dramas as my television viewing of choice, this one had never, ever appealed to me, which is also weird because I actually find Blake Lively very charming. But there was something about the marketing around it, much like the marketing around the books. I was just kind of like, merp, not for me. 
That is an interesting piece that we're going to come back to later, by the way. Okay. But the um, the choice that they made, so as Joe alluded, there's some changes from the books. And one of the most, I would say, one of the most significant changes in terms of how we end up viewing the character is that Serena, in the books, Serena has returned home because she's been kicked out of boarding school. In the TV show, she has returned home because her brother, who in the books is two years older and mostly absent, in the TV show is two years younger and has attempted suicide. Yeah. And she has returned home to be sort of part of his recuperation. Her mother is in either denial about what Eric has attempted to do or in deep shame about it, but she's not telling her society friends what's happened. They've, of they not. they say that Eric has gone to like stay with an aunt or something. Yeah. Aunt in Massachusetts, I think. And so immediately from the moment we meet Serena, she is A, different from the other people in her world because she wants to comfort and care for her brother, not try to hide him away. Mm-hmm. And two, she is back not because she partied too hard for an elite boarding school, mm-hmm. but because... Or got pregnant, or sold drugs, or <laughs> right. got a bunch of venereal diseases. Right. She's back because she, unlike anyone else in this world upon our first meeting of them, she is motivated by things yeah. that aren't just her own self-interest, right? Mm-hmm. So from the beginning, she's a sympathetic character. They push that even further by immediately having her cross paths with Dan, who, viewing this elite world from his outsider position, is sort of grossed out by everything. And she is desperate to explain to him that she doesn't want to be like them, that she wants to change. So right from the beginning, we have a very sympathetic character whose humanity we can relate to in a way that never clicked for me with any of the characters in the book. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's unique about the book, so we kind of danced around it, but it uses blogger pages sporadically. It's actually an interesting writing technique because it gives you updates on things that you already know about, but it also future forecasts events that are going to come in the next chapter. I really like it as a technique. I will say, though, that if you get the ebook, I downloaded the ebook from the library, mm-hmm. and it's formatted very poorly and confusingly. <laughs> and I looked it up online, and apparently, like, it's not like my library just has a bad copy. This is like a known issue with the. It's just like a bad digitization. Yeah, they. I guess they digitized these books in 2008. And they have not been reformatted and re-released since then. So we're looking at we're looking at really old versions of like EPUB technology. Right. So just a heads up, if you are checking this book out, I would suggest you check it out in paper because the ebook is genuinely very hard to read. And if you make any adjustments to like your font size or like background color, it throws everything off wow. dramatically. So yeah, because I make nice. I tend to make the I make the font bigger so I can read it while I'm walking to and from work. And uh, as soon as I did that, it was like the blog pages became unreadable. So yeah, just a heads up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these sections are 
they're kind of like a little bit of an overview like hey if you happen to skim through the last chapter here's what you missed or here's what you can expect to come whereas in the tv show gossip girl is really used to punctuate like put an exclamation mark on ends of scenes particularly going into ad breaks because of course this is a tv show that aired on a network that was being funded by commercials Mm -hmm. so every time you go to commercials you get a little gossip girl kind of like mean-spirited jab and she also of course does like the previously on overviews but i mean you say mean-spirited but compared to the book it's not at all oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah because to me that was actually that was the insurmountable hump of the Mm. books Mm. the language it's so mean it's so mean like the things that they say about serena are just so absolutely ridiculously over the top mean that you're just like and of course because in true teen spirit no one can ever actually just clarify so everybody just says well let's just assume the worst whereas here when serena returns she's photographed in what is it penn station or yes and the thing that happens is serena is back it's not serena is back oh i've heard all these things it's just where has she been why is she here so even the nature of a rumor is treated differently in the tv show and her being back is more like an affair so people are saying okay i'm really interested now i want to know the story they're not taking it into vitriol and like really terrible territory yes agreed So that also helps in that capacity. Like you're not immediately presented with a character and asked to judge her sexuality. You're really just saying, okay, she's a character with a bit of a secret. Wonder what it is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to take. I think also Blake Lively is inherently likable, like as an actress. Mm -hmm. And I think that without some of these changes, I don't think she would have rung true as the... I mean, maybe that's not fair to her. Maybe she could stretch to that. I don't know. But I've never seen her in a role where I was like, mm, I hate you slash love to hate you. Because I think that's the goal in the book is you're supposed to kind of love to hate these characters. And I think part of it is that I'm just too old to love to hate anymore, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> like life is hard and I'm tired. And I don't want to like, I don't want to love to hate. I just want to enjoy things. Okay. Well, tell me then, how did you feel about the character of Chuck in the TV show? Because oh. in the book he's unbearable whereas in the tv show would you say you felt the same um and and let me give you a gentle forecast he and blair become the signature it couple of this tv show the one that everyone roots for ew what ew Mm-hmm. What is wrong with culture? Um, <laughs> so I don't like him. I don't like him in this format. I like I dislike him less because I think everybody's a lot more sympathetic in the TV show. Here's an interesting thing. I think part of that is because we know their parents. Yes. I was wondering how long it would take us to get to that. <laughs> in the book, we don't know any of their parents, no. really. And that's really, as we've talked about a million times, normal for YA, right? Kill off the parents, let us focus on the kids. They're the interesting part. But in the TV show, the parents make the characters a lot more sympathetic, right? Like Blair's mom is a designer, I guess, mm-hmm. who thinks her own daughter is like too fat to wear her dresses off the rack. Oh, yeah. She's huge. She's got to be what? Like a size four? Oh my God, if that, right? And so this framing of anxiety around bodies, the inherent fat shaming in the world that these teenage girls live in that is perpetuated by their mothers. And then the dads who are all, I mean, 
Nate wants to break up with Blair, but his dad won't let him because he has to put a business deal through with Blair's mom. Yeah. And like, so the parents take a lot of the unlikability. They take a lot of the heat. Yes. Which allows the teens to be a lot more likable. So in that respect, Chuck is somewhat softened by the fact that his dad's an arse. Well, and I think you're, you're meant to say, oh, well, how could this he turn out any differently? Exactly. He's still the primary character who is using sexual violence as a weapon for his own benefit in that he is sort of a date. I mean, not sort of. He is a date rapist. That seems to just be like a regular part of his character that we're all supposed to go like, oh, yeah, no, that's the date rapist. Mm -hmm. um, but also, he's the one who knows... He's the only one outside of the love triangle who knows that Serena and Nate have slept together. Yeah. And that is the weapon that he wields over Serena. Mm -hmm. He is the real-life gossip girl. He is the real-life gossip girl. Spoiler, he is not, but... <laughs> we never do find out, do we? I think thought that was like the whole thing. You don't in the book, you do in the TV show, but it's one of those things where it's revealed so late in the game that when it is revealed, you're like, that makes no sense. How I Met Your Mother Syndrome? Mm, yes, that's a good comparison. So for that reason, I hate Chuck. <laughs> the, the idea that he would become a character people root for really makes my tummy hurt. But I mean, yeah. most things about this series make my tummy hurt. So It's one of the character retcons that I think they put a lot of effort into. So he's definitely lecherous in these first couple of episodes. And I think what ends up happening is Ed Westwick and Leighton Meester, the actress who plays Blair, they have such a kind of fire and ice like they're in cahoots but they're also like sexually attracted to each other like they have a really good chemistry on camera mm -hmm. so i think what ends up happening is the writers start to realize they're actually more fun to see them right. being bad bad boy bad girl plotters and then they're like oh we should get these two together i mean as I mentioned, I think I watched about the first two seasons and then I read the plot recap for the remaining seasons. This is teen melodrama to the hilt. I think at one point, literally every character gets together, including like Jenny and Nate. Oh. There's very little gay stuff. In the books, apparently Dan experiments in one of the books or thinks that he's gay, but then of course realizes he loves Serena and a bunch of other women. Because, you know, sexuality is... Fluid, I guess. <laughs> I mean, notoriously, sexuality is fluid for the service of plot. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> when you got money and nothing else to do and just nothing but booze. Sure. Sleep with your friends. And I will say that's one of the things that I found. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I found yucky in the book is the way. So there's a there's a thing about a hot tub and Blair and Serena had like kissed in a hot tub when they were drunk. And of course, that becomes a whole like Chuck fantasy gossip fodder Naturally. thing. Yeah. And again, commodification of female sexuality for male pleasure. Huge theme of the books. <laughs> yeah, that and it's an interesting disruption of this idea that sex has to be perfect, which we've seen in a lot of other That's texts. true. Although Blair still wants sex to be perfect. 
She does, but I think it's actually more meant to be a reflection of her personality. I think a recurring theme in the books in particular, but it is evident to a lesser degree in the TV show, is that Blair has a narrative that she Mm -hmm. believes her life will go through. So, Mm -hmm. like, at one point, I think she says she wants to receive, like, some kind of commemoration from Barack Obama and then a recommendation that she get into Yale and then Yale celebrates her. So she's like, this is what will happen. You're just like, girl, no, you're deluded. But this is how she sees things playing out. And therefore, she believes her life is meant to take certain paths, which, of course, is presented as like, uh, you're in for a bit of a disappointment because you don't control the other people in your life. Well, and that's I mean, they all try to right? like that's part of how this world functions. Yeah. I agree with you completely. The TV show makes these characters far more likable, even though it really maintains this idea of the super elite who have problems that are really not problems. And they spend most of their time drinking, running around and trying to mess up each other's lives. But what it does so well is recognize how to insert the ridiculous and the melodrama so that you can look at it and say, well, this is frothy and soapy, like much more what you were saying about the shopaholic books, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're saying there is a pleasure. And like this series was routinely described by critics as the guilty pleasure you don't feel that guilty about enjoying. Yeah, yeah. The other funny thing, though, about it, and this is coming back to the marketing, when I picked up the book, I was actually really off-put because you pick up the first book and it's three girls sitting on a couch and the top half of their head is cut off. So it's legs and no face. So it's that fashion modeling perspective where it really is the commodification of women meant to be sort of every woman <laughs> but also i mean a pretty narrow band literally of do not have brains they've been chopped yeah. off <laughs> and their mouths are open on the cover it is quite off-putting they have like these open mouths i mean they're laughing they're gossiping they're gossiping but they're also like there's a sexual availability about them that is upsetting when you remember that it's a book about teenagers <laughs> mm-hmm. you know yeah. i mean they look 25 oh yeah yeah but then you compare this with some of the marketing for the tv show and i will never forget this because to me it's the height of recognizing the power of the visual medium so in the second season what the marketing team for the cw did was they played on the fact that the tv show was ostentatious and ridiculous and off-putting to concerned parent groups. So they collected quotes from all of the really bad reviews, and they ended up putting that into the key artwork for the second season. So they had scenes of, like, the characters having sex, and over the top of it would be the quote, OMFG, or (laughs) every parent's worst nightmare. (laughs) So they they really played on the idea like, hey, kids, you should be watching this because look at what these concerned parent groups think about this show. But it's so tongue in cheek and self-aware. Like there's nothing on the show that is actually even that bad. Right. So no. I love that self-awareness that the TV show has. And I would honestly credit that to Schwartz and Savage because they they are savvy in that way. And it was the same kind of publicity that they managed to drum up for the OC. Did you know that this was supposed to be a film that failed in production? I didn't know that. And then when I saw who was attached to it. Amy Sherman Palladino. And who was the star? Lindsay Lohan. That 
is. That's a movie I want to see. Curse in an alternate universe. That world exists, and <laughs> I, I was shocked. I was gobsmacked. Yeah. So Amy Sherman Palladino, if you're not aware, is the writer showrunner for Gilmore Girls. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Lindsay Lohan is Lindsay Lohan. That pairing alone, I would do anything to see actually have come to fruition. Yes. I mean, can you imagine a hyper literate and really, really fast paced dialogue? I know. know. And coming from Lindsay Lohan, which my brain just disconnected. I can't. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen that version exist. I feel like the time we discovered that there was like, a, oh, hell spells. I've forgotten which one it was. There was like a Sarah Polly treatment of oh. one of the texts we looked at. Yes. Yeah. That's I feel uh, like Paper I... Town, or not Paper Towns, uh, the other John Green book. Yes, Fault in Our Stars. There was a Sarah Polly treatment. I, okay, I want to live in that world and I want to live in this world. I can't imagine how much more interesting I would find a, yeah, as you say, a literate, an erudite, a smart and snappy version of these characters very odd it would be very odd but i think very compelling i sure amy sherman palladino would make them so likable and the parents i think the parents would just be so interesting in that universe anyway it doesn't exist but it should yeah and thinking about how Lindsay lohan would have fared this would have been on the cusp of her really really bad behavior Mm -hmm. which is kind of hysterical because that role ultimately winds up getting filled by taylor momsen jenny over the course of the series jenny it's kind of hysterical. So the Jenny in the book, she's got curly hair and she's got enormously large breasts. Yes, Whereas comically Taylor so. Taylor Momsen, the actress who plays Jenny in the TV show, is slight and thin and blonde. She looks like every other, you know, Hollywood actress. Yes. But in real life, the actress became like a rock star over the course of the TV show's run. Mm. And so she goes like a full-blown like raccoon eye makeup, cuts her hair, not short, but like quite a bit shorter. And apparently she was quite difficult on the set. And (gasps) ultimately they ended up keeping her in name only for I think the fourth season and then got rid of her completely in the fifth season. (laughs) That's hilarious. So you could say the Taylor Momsen fits the Lindsay Lohan bill on the course of this show hilarious yeah (laughs) it's interesting as a cultural milestone gossip girl was kind of revelatory for the first couple of seasons like this show became famous as i mentioned not just for like hair but for fashion Mm -hmm. for being very deliberately and distinctively set in new york they did Mm -hmm. actually film there it was very expensive and apparently they wanted them to film in los angeles i bet they did Stephanie Savage insisted that there wasn't a show aside from like Law and Order that was filming in New York. So she felt like New York is a character in the show. So I think that's where the comparisons to Sex and the City are coming from, right? The idea that New York is a character. Um, And also, and honestly, I think a little bit because there's typing in Sex and the City and people are like, that's the same as a blog. (laughs) But I mean, the difference is that the fantasy of Sex and the City is like, what writer could afford this lifestyle whereas the fantasy of i mean it's not a fantasy in gossip girl right like they are this fabulously wealthy their experience of this life makes concrete sense yes oh yes because the second season it takes place in part in the hamptons one of the seasons opens in paris so this truly is 
lives of the fantabulously wealthy <laughs> and bored. Yes. Have you got any YA bingos? I have so many bingos. I, know, I have so like many this, bingos. This could take the cake. We could end <laughs> up with an actual bingo here. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so here's what I have, and tell me if you've got others. Okay. So I have frenemies. Yes, absolutely. Love triangle. Mm-hmm. Parents just don't understand. Oh, big time. Rich people problems. Yep. Those are mine. What do you have? I have a secondary queer subplot. I was going to say that about the hot tub. The hot tub, but also in the TV show, Eric, Serena's brother, it's revealed that the reason he tried to take his own life is because he's secretly gay. Oh. Yeah. Okay. We've got house porn. Oh, we do. We do. We totally have house porn. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining we could fill in the holiday set pieces because, of course, <laughs> I mean, it just is what it is. We didn't really see it on the TV show. And I don't know. Do we say slutty secondary character of all of the characters are slutty? <laughs> I think I was going to say it in terms of, like, the representation of other characters right like if we think about how everyone sees everyone else operating in the universe like mm -hmm. everybody thinks that someone else is this slutty secondary character in their life yeah and you know activism for the peregrine falcons <laughs> uh i don't know i i want to take it back because we both know that that was not actually for the birds <laughs> that was for the kate spade gift bags oh man what oh, a world dear. yes it's so expensive to be poor and so many free things when you're rich. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. <laughs> okay. So let's do the social media handles. Sure. So um, you can find us, obviously, on the social medias. You can use the hashtag HKHSpod to get at both of us and to tell me why I should care about rich people problems. <laughs> Joe, where can folks find you? I am at B Storm My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Of course, if you have something longer that you want to tell us about Gossip Girl, maybe, you know, draws in. Oh, I mean, this could be fanfic central, I would right? read this fanfic. I would absolutely read this fanfic. Yes. yes. So you could send those to hkhspod at gmail.com. Awesome. And Joe, I have no idea where we're going next week. Yeah, it's because we are deviating from our regular episode format because we have reached, <gasps> drumroll, the midpoint of the year. So it is time <laughs> for couple of special excerpt editions we are going to do our rest of the year ya forecast so Yay. anticipated books that we're looking forward to and Hold lists at the ready ladies and gentlemen indeed yes and uh, <laughs> the other piece that we're going to do is we've promised it for so so many weeks we're finally going to revisit some of the books that we have done as homework and we're going to touch base on what our thoughts were whether or not you should check them out so i think we'll be revisiting sex education and umbrella academy as well as numerous other books that we have mentioned over the course of the homework section thus far yes absolutely mm -hmm. okay so yeah, that's what you can look forward to in the first week of June. Sounds good. So until then, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.